I like building computer programs, that's true. But I also like building anything that is built. Businesses are also just as much something you build. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. So hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. Today we have another special guest and I want to tell you how I was introduced to him. And we talk on this show a lot about serendipity, randomness of business, networking, things like that. So I, I like to acknowledge when those types of things come up. And I was one of my first conferences in like four or five years this past February at RailsConf. And it was actually my first RailsConf too. We were standing in line talking to a couple of internet friends and a couple of guys walk up and we finished going through the line and we sit down at the table and I'm talking with someone and I was asking him how he knew the person that he walked up with. And he said, oh, that's the CEO of Cloud66. I was sort of surprised because I've been a Cloud66 customer for quite some time. I never met anyone from Cloud66. So I was like really happy to meet someone. And so I go over, introduce myself. He seems very happy to meet me. And he whips out his phone and takes my name and email address. And he tells me he's going to give me an account credit. Sure enough, when I get home, I had a huge account credit on my account. I just want to tell that story. So today, our special guest is Cash Sajadi. And so welcome to the show, Cloud66 founder and CEO. Hi. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very excited. And thank you for that story, for sharing it. It's always amazing to see a Cloud66 support joint customer. It's always good. And I'm very grateful that you, you have me on the show. Yeah. Thanks for being here. Do you attend a lot of conferences or was there something special going on at that one? Well, <laughs> I used to, like, like pretty much everybody else, right? And then right. what it seems like 20 years ago, there was a pandemic. So that was the first one in many, many years. Yeah, I think probably true for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. So you're the founder and CEO of Cloud66, but we want to, before we get into too much about what Cloud66 does, I'd like to know more about your background and where you grew up. How did you get into tech? And then how you found your way to founding Cloud66? So without revealing my age, I'm going to say that I started. None of us are anxious to do that these days. (laughs) So yeah, I grew up in the Middle East, in Iran, up until like my 20s. And that was all my passion. So I kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. Like any kid, you just try different things. But at one one of the school competitions or whatever else, they participated in this competition, which was mostly like maths and like it wasn't anything to do with computers back then. I mean, computers were like this sideshow of, of electronics, right? And the present, the, the kind of prize that they gave at the end of this, because I think I came like first, the second or whatever, was this bust of a, like a scientist or something and a certificate. And my dad was all, that sucks. That's a bit lousy. This is not going to incentivize this kid to do any better. I was like, who wants that? (laughs) So I think he augmented the prize with some electronic kits unbeknown to me. And I got that. I got hooked into electronic kits, like, you know, building sirens and like flashing lights and whatever else. Very simple things. It's just a soldier together. And as a result, I really got into it and I got and I subscribed to this, the only electronics magazine in Iran. That would, was a monthly paper printed, like old school, dead tree sort of thing. And we would go through it and build things and force my dad to take me to different like shops far away from where I lived and buy the components and whatnot. And they issued one special issue about computers, which was like this new shiny thing as a special edition of the electronics magazine. 
And I looked at it and it was all like gibberish to me. I was like, what the hell? What, what is this thing? But after a while, having my, my dad going through pretty much spending a lot of money on components and me going through all my pocket money, buying anything that I would have, anything I would sell, anything that I would make as a kid, just on, on electronics, I realized that I need to sit down and kind of think about this thing. And it was kind of one of those weird moments that I, I don't think I've ever had that, like, like seriously sitting down and thinking about like your future sort of thing. And I thought, what is it that I like about this? And it turned out, or at least I convinced myself that I like building. I don't necessarily have any affinity with electronics, I just like building things. So I decided in my 14-year-old mind that the best way to do that is to invest in a computer so I can build computer programs as opposed to just things that are you, know, you buy, put together, and then throw away. So I pestered my dad a lot about, can I get a computer? And it was, I think, a Commodore 64 was my first one. And that was my kind of big investment. And I thought, okay, the next thing that I'm going to build is going to be a computer program. And that's how I started. I started with like basic and then I moved on to assembly. I think it was 6510, which was the CPU of Commodore. 6502, I think was another one. And then I kind of at school, we had IBM compatible PCs, 8086 and 8088. That's Asian, right? So kind of saw the whole thing. And I, I always consider myself lucky in two senses that for some reason, this epiphany, if you will, happened to me that I like building things. And it turned out that it was actually a correct assessment of my makeup, that I like building computer programs. That's true. But I also like building anything that is built. And businesses are also just as much something you build. And I enjoy building Cloud Sixes and I've enjoyed building the comp companies that I built before. That was the first kind of big moment. And the second thing that I was extremely lucky was the fact that the timing of all this. At the beginning, you didn't need degrees. You didn't need like any official anything. We just grew up learning about these things and the companies were learning at the same time and everybody was kind of learning together. That was at a time and when a 14, 15 year old kid could know more than 30 or 40 year old executive, right? Exactly, exactly. I remember my uncle who's about 10 years older than I was and he was going to the university and he went to the university picking up computer science as his major and he wasn't sure what he's going to, he's getting into. He was doing a lot of maths and a lot of the logic and a lot of like those things. But I remember him bringing back punch cards, like real cardboards of lots of holes and stacks of them. So that's kind of the early start of this. That's how I got into this whole thing. And so when you were like nearing high school age, graduation age, what was the goal for you at that time? Building a company. So you were already set on entrepreneurship, building a company? That is the one of the few things that I haven't wavered on and changed. I always wanted to have my own company, wanted to build a, build a business. My dad did the same thing. I was, I was, was going to ask if you had any family yeah. members that were entrepreneurs as well. Yes, my dad, very much so. He it was and still is. The age that he is, he is still, he builds things and he thinks of business ideas and he always executes on those. And he's a risk taker. And I think I took it like learned. I used to go to his office and just hang out, whether it was like picking a crayon and just drawing something on a paper or whether I could actually understand what's going on to a limit, to a, to a degree. He had an engineering company and I would go there and hang out there. And I got just by osmosis, maybe just to like get to understand things a little bit. And I really liked it. I liked the fact that there was nothing and then you do something and there is something. And that was magical. This still is. So what was your next step after... Did you go to university after high school? And where was that at? Yeah. 
So I went and studied mechanical engineering. I have no idea how to design even like a windscreen wiper. I just went there because I wanted to go to university. And the reason is that, as I said, I grew up in Iran. And back then when I was growing up, there was a war going on. So this is like post-Iranian revolution where the fundamentalist Islamists came to power. And it wasn't very comfortable growing up there. So for me, the aim was do my thing, have nothing to do with the politics that's what that was going on. And there was one thing, and then there was a war going on. So there was a real war between two countries, Iran and Iraq had eight years of war. And I grew up there. I was in the capital, which was at the end of the war was being attacked. So we actually had like rockets and whatnot. Early things, we were not at the border town, so it wasn't that bad. And one of the consequences of that is there's a military service that all boys of a certain age have to do. And it was two years because it was during the war. So you have to go away for two years and there's a high chance that they send you to the front line. And me being the city kind of boy that I was, that wasn't an option for me. And the only way that you could get out of that was to be at the university, kind of being, you know, full-time education. So I wanted to get to the university. That was it. Computer science was an option, but I didn't get in. So I did the next thing that I could do, which was mechanical engineering, went through that for four years. That was in Iran. And after that, the war had ended, and then I could just not do the military service, luckily. And after that, by just very huge chance and random things. So I had a company I started, and I wanted to expand it into Europe. So I came to the UK. I went to the UK, I should say. Now I'm in the US. So you started a company while you're in college? Yes. So I started a company with a friend of mine back then, and it was obviously a computer company. It was a software company. Back then, you would shrink wrap, put it in the CD, like record, and that was the distribution method. But it was a software that would analyze log files for various different things. Most of the log files that we would analyze back then were radius servers or dial-up modem servers for ISPs. So you had these ISPs that would sell internet like AOL or whatever, right? And they all had this number that you dial with your modem, right? And they would sell internet in different tiers and you know, how much usage, how many hours a day, and they had the cheap hours and then expensive hours and all that sort of stuff. And the way they would bill, sometimes they had sophisticated systems, but sometimes just these servers that would accept the modem dial-up and then they would just log the calls and the disconnect and the bytes in, bytes out, were just in the log file. So we wrote a software that would just go through these log files and analyze them so we could have a table of like how many users, how many hours, and then you could send it into the billing and you know get people pay for that thing. So that was kind of the first thing. And then from there, we got into log file analysis, proper like anomaly detection and intrusion detection and other things, and we started sending it to banks. So that was kind of what I started, that this is a company and the business that we started. How did you know that was a problem to solve? Yeah, that's a good question. So a friend of mine started working at a bank. And back then, banks were one of the first companies and kind of businesses that were using internet. And some of those banks actually had subsidiaries that started selling that internet, satellite internet back then, on to end, end customers. So through that friend, I learned that we, we're doing this and we're having a hard time like doing the billing. Can you help? Like, can we figure something out? So we started looking at this. The solution coming out of log files was complete, like aha moment. Because before that, me being an engineer, I really wanted to put something in front of the, the whole thing. And then the, the modems will call this. And there was like a callback and all sorts of like complicated, <laughs> overcomplicated things. And the banks wouldn't have it. It's like, I'm not going to let like an 18-year-old like write a piece of software in my whole infrastructure. So we went like, what is the end product that nobody's going to touch? It's like something that's kind of a discarded part of the whole process, which was the log. You know, throw it away almost. 
was like, I'll start working with this one. Because <laughs> it's just like the discarded part, nobody cares about. Give it to me, I'll figure it out. <laughs> so that's how it started. So you were going on to say, you, I guess, next steps after that? Yeah, so we have this company. It's in Iran. And what size company was it? A couple of people we started or did you... two of us. We started as two of us. And I think by the time that I'm saying this at this time, it's probably maybe four or five. It was a small outfit. And that was the kind of the next step for us growth. How can we expand the market? Because you start a company in a small economy where you have, I don't know, like 50 banks and you basically saturate the market and that's it. And then the 50 banks, maybe there's another 50 ISPs, independent or like secondary subsidiaries, whatever else. But that's pretty much it. There's not much more room to grow, right? And then at the top of, on top of that, I mean, the software, then the language for, the, for everything was English. So it was you know, already internationalized, if you will. And we could just sell it on. And we, as software engineers, we know that the language, the lingo franco of like our industry is English, right? So that's a starting point. But then for us selling it on was difficult because of the sanctions. This is when I think it was the Clinton administration in the US, if I'm not mistaken, or maybe it was Bush, the senior Bush. But anyway, the sanctions start to hit Iran and we essentially couldn't trade with anybody else. And if you think about the Middle East, what are the biggest markets there in terms of soccer? Obviously, Israel is the biggest one, which as an Iranian entity you cannot trade with because they don't even acknowledge the existence of the country. And then you have Back then, yeah. Dubai and United Arab Emirates, which is now pretty big, was a backwater. And you have Jordan and Egypt, right? So those are kind of like the bigger economies and it's not big enough. So you have to go from there, you have to go pretty international. So we decided Europe, that's the next step. And when you talk about Europe, probably the UK is the obvious choice, English language, a friendly business environment. So I traveled there and started thinking about how can I expand this. At the same time, there's this tiny Canadian company doing the same thing. It's called Web Trends. And they're in Canada and they had BC banking and they just crushed us. By the time that we were, we had a much better product, much mature product. We've been doing it for a long time. We had real customers. And this was this just like upstart in, I want to say Toronto, but I'm not sure. I'm sure we can look it up. And they had the same product. And then I think they had VC backing and then almost immediately they sold on to a bigger company, which I don't remember what it was. And that was like big pockets, deep pockets. They just obliterated us. Did they acknowledge you at all? Did they ever reach out wanting to partner or acquire you? I don't know. It's like, yes, assuming intent on their side is kind of difficult for me, but I have been in a situation like this. Then imagine this, you have this company that's come, sure now it's a UK entity, but then the origin is Iranian and that's why we went to the UK because of the sanctions. We didn't want to break any international law. So we started the UK company. We developed software. The IP was now British and we could sell it. But then the company went, like, imagine the web trends, a like, conversation going on in the boardrooms. Oh, maybe we should buy this company. And the like, whole thing was like, well, who, who are we going to pay? A bunch of Iranians? No, thank you. I would say that's a natural and logical thing to do for a company. It's like saying, right? So no, we didn't hear from them, but let me know. <laughs> what was your next steps? At that point, I sold my share of the company to my partner and I picked up a contract in the UK working mostly on kind of sounds interesting now, I guess odd now, where it was a recruitment agency where they would call web CVs and job positions and then get CVs and then try to use back then machine learning. And this is, we're talking about 2000, 1999 now, 
machine learning to match the candidates automatically without the recruiter being in the middle, right? And doing machine learning back then was kind of a fun thing. Does that mean they have like the word software in their resume and the job description has the word software in it? So you have, <laughs> you have like the basics of like your natural language processing, you know, tokenization and all that. But then at the same time, you have, we started using expert systems for this, which was big back then. You have this decision tree and then you kind of, you know, work your way down to probabilities of match. And then, of course, there's a room full of paid people who get this and then the software prioritizes what you have to spend your time most on. And they will clean it up, essentially, you know, clean up the mess that we made. That was kind of, kind of the project that I took. And as a result of that, I started another company. Well, actually, two, two other companies. One of them failed. The other one was kind of moderately successful. So the first one was called Vital Science. And that was exactly like pinged up. That's what we did. We just pinged off the ping websites. And we scrape them and have a hash. So if somebody doesn't changes, your defaces your website and all that sort of stuff. That wasn't very successful. I partnered up with my back then boss to build it. And it was running off of a server that was under my desk. <laughs> Irony of it all, right? So you have, you're checking the health and the <laughs> you know, software internationally like on, the, on the open internet. And he runs on a software server that's on your desk. <laughs> that's awesome. What sort of programming language were you working in then? Back then, I think that one was, must have been Turbo Pascal, probably. I'm pretty sure that was Delphi, maybe. But, you know, that's the kind of the timing of this. And then the second business that I did, which was kind of successful, and it was a solo indie, as probably your, your audience would resonate with. As part of this whole data transfer that we would get the whole data from these crawlers. And remember, this is not before, if this is before AWS, what you have is you have a server rented colo in a data center somewhere. And that would just crawl the web and it had, ends up with this huge file. And you have to transfer this file to another server, which is its job is something else. So no microservices, thankfully, and no cloud. So lower bills, but a lot of data transfer challenges. So what I built was an FTP server that sits in front of a database. So essentially an interface for a database that presents itself as an FTP server. For those audience that don't know what FTP server is, because it's quite ancient technology, it's file transfer protocol. It's kind of the cousin of HTTP. In HTTP, you send a request, you get HTML back. In, in FTP, there are the protocols fine-tuned for folders and files and resuming of those. And there's another HTTPS kind of equivalent of that SFS FTP. And protocol is pretty messed up. It's super ancient. I think in mainframe origins, I don't know. But anyway, this software that, that we wrote would sit in front of a database, connect to a database from the back end. And then when you connect to it, it presents tables as files and you can download the file. And you can upload them and you could create these mappings of like this file is a CSV coming up and this column goes to that column. And then what to do with in case of a conflict and you know, all that kind of stuff. So essentially what you have is a huge CSV file that is generated by this crawler. And then you want it to push it into a database and have multiple crawlers and what happens when you have all this data transfer. And what you want is, and then you're up in a single database, right? So the software was that. And I kind of signed the contract in a way with the company that I had a contract with that I could take ownership of the IP of this and I can sell it on independently as a piece. And I did that and it was actually quite successful. So I started selling it to different companies around the world, but it was a small business. It wasn't something that I could really retire on. Now, this is 1999, 2000 and the dot-com bubble bursts. So there is probably something there, but then all of a sudden the whole market collapses on itself. And that was the end of that. So kind of, I guess... On my part, bad management of timing in terms of 
try to get it somewhere to momentum that would survive the crash. But on the other side, some of it is out of your control. The fact that people were just buying and selling pet.com stock, I don't know, 20 times Gazillion multiplier. dollars. You know, that's something you cannot predict. So did that bus put you back at ground zero? Yes. I started back with contracting and I did a bunch of that. And then I ended up being in London, UK, where financial industry is quite big. I ended up working for banks. <clears throat> so I went and worked for a company called Sungard Trading and Risk Systems, which is still around. It's, I think, might be even like the largest privately owned soccer company in the world. And nobody knows about it. It's an offshoot, an oil company in Texas, I think. And it's just financial software provider. And there I was doing credit risk management software and kind of modeling of different trades. And then from there, I went to Lehman Brothers, which is now a very famous outfit back then. Everybody was like, so what do you do? Like, I have this bank. Goldman? No, 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 it's Lehman's. Okay, so what do you do there? Residential mortgage-backed securities? Oh, fuck that. I'm just going to, let's drink. <laughs> and then six months later, everybody's like, oh my God, you were doing securitization, all the dirty words in one sentence. So yeah, I went to Lehman Brothers. And then when Lehman's collapsed, I kind of lost my trust in, or faith, I should say, in in a lot of things. As did a lot of people at that time. I can imagine, yeah. I mean, a lot of people lost their homes and whatnot. I mean, for me, loss of faith was probably mild. But two things that really stood up after that was, on one end, the whole puffing up and the whole hype cycle that was around. I remember that we filed Chapter 11 on Monday and Friday evening, Dick Fold, our CEO, CEO of Lehman Brothers, would come on a conference called Hands on Town, Village Town, whatever the hell they called it. And they would say, we have the strong balance sheets. The biggest asset class in the world is mortgages. They're not going to let us down. Fed's going to bail us out. Don't worry about it. And by then, the, the stock that we had that we bought for like $80 a pop was already worth like 10 cents or whatever. So we already lost a lot of money, but it was all monetary. Then Monday morning, I wake up and this is in London. So whatever happened in New York evening and Sunday's already happened. And I turn on the, the news and it's basically Limbrothers to Fall for Chapter 11 and the whole world basically fell apart. So I lost my faith in all this puffing up. And the reason I'm mentioning it is a lot of things about the VCs. You know, a lot of VCs you see, oh, I have this amazing portfolio. Everything is very much availability bias. Every, everything is about like the successful companies in the portfolio that they talk about. The second thing was a kind of a bigger one about I don't want to be somewhere that can potentially do so much harm. After Lehman collapsed, I was moved. I wasn't left unemployed. I was moved. One of the few were moved into another entity of, of Lehman's, which was a mortgage servicing company. So you have these mortgages that we buy and then we create into different tranches. Now everybody knows like what securitizer. So we securitize those. But there's a part that we used to call sludge. The ones that you couldn't securitize because they were delinquent for more than 60 days. There were some criteria that you couldn't securitize. So they would end up on Lehman books forever. You have to service it. You become a lender. And there was this company, there were a few companies that Lehman had that would do this. I was moved to one of them called SPML, Southern Pacific Mortgage Lending Company, whatever. And we had a lot of delinquent or not very you know, top grade mortgages on the books. And one day I walk up to the billboard, the, the, the board in the, the thing, and there's like a list of mortgages and there's a, it's some mortgage numbers. And it, next to it, it says quiet, noisy, normal. And there were these three status that was associated. And I asked someone, like, what are those? And he said, quiet is when you go and they basically jingle melt you. They're not there. They leave the keys and they, they give it to you. You go to repossess. That's the key. So that was kind of quiet. And then you have noisy where you go in there to kick people out of their homes and they put up a fight. 
normal is when you have to, you know, go and like kick them out and you kick them out. And that was a kind of a very strange moment for me. It was kind of like, even if I were to, if I was like army engineer building weapons, at least there is a version that I can say that what I build can end a human life is that at least it saves the other side of the weapon, right? But in this, what's the upside? Sure, they signed a dotted line. They say your position's at risk if you don't pay. Oh, I get that. Sure, they probably remortgaged their homes and went on a European holiday. It doesn't matter. The fact is there's a kid there that's not homeless. And that didn't sit well with me. So I left finance. I just basically left working for anything like that. I thought, you went quiet. Yeah, I went quiet. And I left London. I came to San Francisco, worked as a first engineer of a startup here. How did you get to San Francisco? You moved because of that job? Yes. So the founder, so this is 2011. After the financial crash, we, we've been through like 2008 financial crash of Lehman's, obviously. And I had some odd contracts here or there. But then the founder of this company was in San Francisco. It was an old, old friend of mine, which we kind of were not in touch, but we, he wanted to have, a, have an engineer as a founding engineer. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give it a go. So I, I left London, came to San Francisco, worked for the startup. It was VC funded with all the things, strings that, that comes attached. And yeah, I worked there, but it didn't work out. I did, the company kind of worked out, but I didn't want to live in the US. My wife back then and two kids in the UK. And we were thinking maybe we would move, but there was a logistical line there with school and everything else. So I went back. That's not the end of the story, right? I, no, no, I'm just <laughs> anxious that I've been babbling about my, my background story for most of the foreground and I just don't want to, no, I'm, I'm fascinated. I have my background in finance. And so I've, oh, really? I've pretty closely followed all the financial stuff. And oh, okay. so I, I love hearing the inside story of it. I mean, a lot of what you're saying too is tying, it's explaining how you get to, how a technical person gets into like this kind of leadership position that you're in now too. Right, right. Which is at least, it's helpful for me to see like how that happens. Sure. So yeah, I went back to London. And I started contracting again for about, I want to say a year, less than a year. I think it's cool how, like we talk a lot about freelancing and contracting here on the show and how that always, it seems like in your life has always provided like a, a grounding foundation that you could always fall back to in between opportunities. That's absolutely right. And I think the bigger part of that even, like there's the financial side of it and the contracting pays well, especially where I was I had experience in finance or IT for finance, and I had experience for expert systems. So you have, and this is what I'm like talking to my kids right now when they want to go and choose something for university. It's all about multidisciplinary. It's about the, the, the junction that different disciplines meet each other. That's where the interesting things happen. And you can be a lawyer, which is great. And you can know a lot about AI, but a lawyer who knows about AI, now that's things I think are interesting. Exactly. So that's part of it. But then the contracting part is to me is like when you actually interact with a lot of different requirements, constraints, and, and different people, and you don't come out of college and dream up of an idea and say, oh, that would be cool to build and driven by technology, driven by cool things, by shiny toys, and you build it and then like, okay, where's the customer? Who wants this? But if you have this thing that you have to earn a living essentially by building something useful that people want, a lot of times those things are super boring. They pay well, but they're boring. And then the interesting part comes from that junction. You have that background. You build something that's boring yet profitable. And then you go, okay, how can I make it interesting for myself? 
knowing that it's still useful. And I'm not just building a thing that's cool to build, but it doesn't pass any tests of market. And that's kind of the other part of contracting that I find valuable. So having done a few contracting gigs again, when I was back in the UK, I decided that I'm done and I want to start my next one. So I kind of recovered. As you know, a lot of people say this and you have a bug, you get the bug and you kind of have to do it. Basically, I put it as I'm broken. I'm not employable anymore. I cannot work for anyone anymore. (laughs) I have to now do this. So part of that is that having gone through all these different various jobs and gigs and contracts and things that are different backgrounds, you see these common patterns and kind of those things. And to me, it was every time I go and start something new, there are certain things that I always have to do every time, like cron jobs, like things that run on a certain time. Like it doesn't matter if you're a pharmaceutical, like catering, or that's always the case. Might even be offline. I come into the kitchen and I turn on the lights and I have to make sure that the coffee maker is like warmed up. Like these things that happen. So there's a cron essentially, as we know in IT, right? So the cron jobs or security and authentication. Now those are these APIs, right? So my idea was that I'm going to build, I identified about 14 of those. 14 things that I always had to repeat every time that we will build and we will provide to developers as APIs. So it becomes that. And the kind of the pitch was that it is a growing thing. So you kind of add to this portfolio of things. And it started to evolve into, and this is 2011, iPhone's out for a while, but the app store is kind of new. So I kind of app store for data center. That was the pitch that you have. You have a server, you go to that server, you go like, I want, like, I want a cron management and I want like security and I want patch management, da, 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 right? And I want to install this and that. So that started as that. We started the company with a friend of mine, and we worked back in Lehman Brothers together. And he went on a world backpacking tour and he just came back and really like itching to get his hands dirty into something. And we started that called Cloud Blocks, as in building blocks of cloud. We did that. We started the company. We very early realized that there's a trademark issue on that name. So we changed it and we went through the kind of coming up with the process of choosing the name Cloud 66. We landed on that name. And we rolled it out in 2012 as the App Store for Cloud. And one of the apps that was part of the App Store was deploy, install Rails on your servers. You could just click a button and install Rails. And that was super popular, right? Because Rails is so difficult to install. It was like, it was a nightmare. I think still to a degree is a nightmare (laughs) to install and get it right. But you know, as all good companies are supposed to do, we measured everything and we saw that this particular app is really popular. It's hot. So we dropped everything. We kind of imagined everything and we built, rebuilt everything around the idea of deploying Rails. And then that's Cloud 66. So I'm trying to think, was Heroku a thing at that point? Yeah, Heroku was a big player. So when we started, for us, it was a lot about installing things. So time context, Heroku is doing what they're doing and they are great. You know, developer experience is great. They're the first pass. They kind of created an industry on their own, right? And they've not only created an industry, but created a certain level of developer experience expectation that things can and should work better than this, right? So that's kind of going on that side. And then you have, I don't know, AWS probably has five services. What is it now? Like 500? So it's like five services. S3 was the first one, and then EC2, and maybe they had just the load balancers or one of the few. So the biggest small cloud provider or developer-friendly cloud was Linode. They were like the digital ocean of the time, which digital ocean took a lot of 
leaves out of their book, the whole community and the whole documentation and SEO based on documentation comes straight from Linode into DigitalOcean. So Linode is doing that. So we thought there's a lot of good developer experience, a lot of raw material, like these compute blocks and storage blocks. And you have Rails, which is very popular, thanks to GitHub, thanks to Heroku. Everybody starts with Heroku and everybody seems to want to get off Heroku as soon as they can afford it. It's kind of, or cannot afford it for that matter. Why is that? And we really would spend a hell of a lot of time trying to understand why is that? Why is such great developer experience is immediately thrown away in in favor of subpar, difficult, clunky processes. And a lot of people say cost. Maybe that is the case. There is flexibility. There is dependency on one vendor, albeit Heroku back then was bought by Salesforce. And Rackspace was a much smaller cloud provider. A lot of people were happy to leave Heroku and Salesforce and go with Rackspace. So the whole idea of vendor lock-in and being beholden to like this whims of a CEO of a small company was kind of not nonsense at that point. So it's a mix of a lot of those things, but I think the cost was the biggest one. So we did, as in, in terms of like pitching to the, to our customers was there's a pass cliff. Everybody kind of goes up this hill, very slow ramp, great experience. They go up to the hill and there's a cliff at the end of it. And that's where people jump. And we hope that we have some sort of you know, parachute or something that catches them. And we would do that quite a lot. So one of the ways that we would essentially find out is like, you know, you know the website built with, yeah, but that's what they do, right? They go and like crawl the internet and sign, they look for signs of what a site is built with. And we would go there and we have two markers, we new, new entities, new sites that are running on Heroku and entities that run on Heroku based on their Alexa ranking or was. Or traffic. Exactly. What's the popularity of a website? And it's interesting. You have plus one million. So Alexa ranking works in the reverse order. The, the lower, the better. The lower, like Google is one Alexa ranking, right? So the highest Alexa ranking is a million plus, which is pretty much any new website, starts with Heroku. And as they get to about into the three-digit, four-digit Alexa ranking, they all drop off Heroku. So as they grow, they just drop off. There is a market there, right? There must be a market there. And that's what we tried to build. Were you also hearing this from your customers coming in the door and finding out, oh, they're coming from Heroku. And then you're like putting all this together. Was it customer interviews? Is that how you, on that side of it, like tell us the story of why you came here? Yeah, sure. So there is that, but we are developers. Okay, hands up if you like talking to someone that sells. Okay. Because this yeah. is an audio, I'm going to tell everyone that nobody raised that. <laughs> so between us three developers, we don't like talking to people, right? So selling to developers is, is a slightly different, in my opinion. That's why we have open source so popular and freemium so popular, because as developers, we want to discover things ourselves. We want to figure things out ourselves. We don't want to be told some shiny dream that always fails anyway. I talk to a human being. I mean, who wants to do that, right? So this is kind of the challenge. Like, where do you come from? <laughs> like, good luck getting someone to tell you, even if you offer $50 of Amazon vouchers, right? And we did that, believe me. So one of the things that we have a privilege of being entrusted with is people's source code. And although we don't share that, we don't do anything with it, that is not within our terms and conditions and it's not within the consent that we were given, we are allowed to use it for our own analysis. And if you're doing Rails, there are telltale signs of if you're coming from Heroku, the 12 back to gem is probably the biggest one, but you have other things about what's the URL of your Postgres and those things. And when we get those signals, not only do we detect that they're coming from Heroku on an aggregate, not very individual, 
But for that particular individual, we actually change the user interface to purple, the familiar Heroku color. And we give them signs and helpers and onboarding wizards that will bring them over from Heroku, specifically around the database, which is what we see as the biggest challenge of migration. So th- this is probably a good time to explain what Cloud 66 does, right? Uh, all, <laughs> yes, for, for those listeners, <laughs> so I, I'll explain from a customer standpoint, or at least in layman terms. So you have a Rails app, you can submit your GitHub or Bitbucket or whatever URL. Cloud 66 will analyze your app. It will determine what dependencies you need to run your app. And then you have some choices about where you want your app to run. You can choose any, pretty much any cloud provider, AWS, DigitalOcean, Linode, all the normal ones. And then you, you have some other choices about, do you want a dedicated Redis server? Do you want a dedicated database server? What size servers do you want? You want big ones, small ones, lots of memory. And I think most of those choices are optional. Like it'll kind of pick for you. So you don't have to make all of them, but then you basically just, okay. And then it, it goes out, connects with your data center. It'll build all the servers and deploy the app. And it gives you like nice URLs that you can test everything and like in the background. And then it provides like a lot of other features on top of that with like SSL certificates background jobs. You can create load balancers and have multiple rail servers running. One of the coolest features is when we got into it was that you can have a failover stack. So you can have your app running in on AWS, and then you can have a failover stack running on DigitalOcean with a synchronized database. And then with the, just one button change, you can switch all your traffic to that background server. So if maybe those goes down or you have like some issue and you need to switch traffic and you also have a backed up database. So is that pretty good for layman's terms? That's it. <laughs> uh, my job's done. And by the way, we have an opening on our marketing department. Here. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> okay. That is very accurate. So we, we started that with Rails. Essentially, our page was Heroku on your own servers. And you connect to Git when we do support all Git providers, whether it's server like mine that's sitting on your desk or it's GitHub. It's worked best with GitHub because there's API integration. And then you connect to cloud provider and we support every single data center on every single cloud provider. And that's kind of one of the things about this Heroku CliffPass, just to go back and segue onto that, is that imagine that you can connect to any cloud provider's API, right? That's the easy part. From there, you have an option within the API to choose the data center you want to connect to. So technically, we can deploy your application to any data center of any cloud provider even if it just came out, even if they opened up another one in Mumbai, like yesterday, right? When it comes to a pass provider like Heroku, for example, the unit economy is not a server. The unit economy for them, from, from their business point of view, is a data center. So if somebody wants to host their pass on Heroku Mumbai, Heroku needs to determine whether there are enough customers in India that will want that to invest in building, in renting the servers, building the entire Heroku India there, for it to pay back. The unit economy is another server. And that's why still, what is it like 15 years on, you still only have two public Heroku data centers, one in Europe, one in the US, and the rest are private spaces. Like There's like five of them, eight maybe. There's like you know, private spaces that you and I cannot get into unless we pay, I don't know, say hi, like the stake at the table, like five grand a month or something. So that is one of the advantages of like this kind of change in the business economy, right? I heard you say this on another podcast. Like, I'm not a finance person. How did you figure out, like, aha, Heroku's unit economics around this is the data center? Like, 
I would never have thought of that. But it, like when you say like that, it makes a lot of sense. Is it just like obvious to you with your background or did you like, were you analyzing Heroku as a competitor and eventually it was like, oh, this is how they work. And this is the way that we can do something different that creates like competitive advantage. So it all starts with pricing. When I go and buy something that's expensive, well, I feel it's expensive, right? At least for my kind of income, it, it's expensive. I always ask the question, why is it expensive? And we live in a capital-driven market where if somebody else is giving you something a bit cheaper, that's just like, that's options, right? So why would I, when I have Amazon and you have Google and Microsoft and all that sort of things, month after month, reducing their price, bringing the EC2 price down, why is it that Heroku are holding their very expensive $29 for a dyno, whatever the dyno is? Why is that? Why is market economy not driving this money down, right? In our business, we needed to answer that question. We need to understand because, you know, I understand that you might be quote unquote observer to this to say, well, that's odd, but you know, you just, but for us, we needed to understand to survive, right? That is our business model. So we started looking into this and I, to me, it doesn't make sense. Sometimes you have, I don't know, like a Gucci bag or whatever, right? There's a luxury effect. So because I have, you remember the app that was like a thousand dollars and all it did, did was a spinning ruby gem? Yeah. It's, 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 it, I think I remember that being at Lehman. So it must be 2007, 2006. But there was an app. The app store was just like new, right? It was an app, thousand dollars. And all it did was spinning a 3D model of a ruby gem. And it was all about that. Kind of, I've got that enough money, so much money that I can drop in like a grand on this shit. So to me, IT is not luxury stuff. Like it's not like saffron. It's, it's not like that, right? You would ask the question, why is it? And to me, when it's not luxury, when they cannot hold the value like a Louis Vuitton bag, there must be the answer is that they cannot bring it down. There is a stopper somewhere in the business model. If they cannot, if they do, they lose money, right? And to me, that was the kind of a clue. So why is it that they cannot? And you look at it from that point of view, like, okay, so how do I make money? What's my expenses? What's my profit? What's my loss? And I kind of, to me, that's what it, the clue is there, right? When you start to break it down, like every month, the finance department of Heroku writes a bunch of checks and sends it out to a bunch of people. Who are those people? Oh, it seems that's a data center. And oh, cool. that's the kind of, and I think it's correct. The other part of it is that once I, we had this theory and once we kind of thought about it and then built our unit economy around that, I had a call with another past provider CEO, AppFog, if you may remember, that was a long time ago. And he had just sold his business on to, I think, Akamai or I don't know, some other company. So he was kind of free to talk. And I kind of pitched this idea. It's like, I think that's the issue because I know what they did was they used Cloud Foundry as the backing of their paths. And they went out and they spent, they created a lot of data centers. Like you could go AppFog pretty much anywhere. And I thought, okay, so was that a wise decision you made? Because I think you would be losing money on a lot of those data centers. And he was like, yeah, that's right. That's exactly correct. So I think it is correct. My theory, I think is correct because I think I had a single <laughs> data point proving it as well. That's cool. Thanks for explaining that. Sure. So yeah, that's Classic 6. So we started with, we started obviously with Rails, that being like where we come from. Classic 6 itself is written in Rails. We have a lot of familiarity with that. And all the quirkiness of Rails and different versions, different versions of Bundler, as a pipeline compilation, Webpack versus and now different ways of doing it. So thinking all of those things, database migrations, database seeding, all that sort of stuff. So we are very familiar with Rails. And our deployment process reflects that. Not only do we do all the steps that it takes 
to deploy a Rails application, but we also have hooks that you can hook into before migration, after migration, before asset pipeline, after asset pipeline. And other things that happens when you have that at scale. For example, your asset pipeline might take a long time to compile because it's just big assets. But then you have five servers. Would you run that same process on all five servers or would you just do it once and then copy the artifacts over? And all those kind of tiny little things that makes things cumulatively great. So we built that and we kind of split it into three things, build, deploy, and grow. So the build part is connect your API of cloud provider on any of these data centers before the segue and just build the server, fire it up, provision it, install the packages that are needed and secure it if there's a OS patch or whatever else. So how do we decide what packages need to be installed? Your gem file is the best clue. We go through the gem file and we see that you have no Dolly. So what does that mean? Oh, you have memcached it, right? Or you have Redis this, or you have PG, or you have MySQL 2. So those, like the gems, going to tell us a lot about what you have and what is needed on the server. And then how do you kind of keep those up to date? How do you apply security vulnerability patches and everything else? So that's kind of the build part. Then the deploy part comes where we replicate a lot. We learned a lot and stole a lot from Capistrano. It's a great software. It's a bit old now. We used to use it at the beginning. We don't anymore. We replicate exactly. So it looks and feels and smells really like Capistrano, but we kind of wrote our own version that is API driven. And we deploy the software to that. Then on top of it, there's a traffic question. So we install Nginx and then you can bring your Puma, Thin, WebRex, or, or any like unicorn, passenger, any passenger, Mongo. Yep, exactly. passenger, passenger enterprise, if you have a license for that. So we take care of that. And as well as that, this whole process of deployment can take care of traffic switching. So now what you can do, like this is like an added bonus, you can have preview deployments. So if you have a branch or you have a tag, we can deploy that specific code base onto the same server, but serve a portion of the traffic to that. So it gives you blue-green, it gives you canary releases, all out of the box, preview deployments for branches that are not merged yet into main, all that sort of stuff. And then there's the grow part, where not only do we see that you have Dolly or you have Redis or you have MySQL or Elasticsearch gems, but we also suggest that we can install and manage it for you. And we do that by installing a MySQL and trying to scale it. If you want, you can scale it. So you have a replicas and main, all that kind of stuff. And we also, as you mentioned, manage backups, where we take backups, not just from your database, but across all the databases and then ship it off to S3. And here's the thing that we found, our view to infrastructure is exactly kind of constant across the board. We don't look at infrastructure as an abstract that is there and you have to take care of it. So scaling means yet another server or firewalls means an IP and a port. We look at it from a developer's point of view. So what does that mean? For example, say firewall, instead of a port and an IP, what it means is that my Rails servers wants to talk to my database servers. Do whatever it takes to make it happen. I don't care about the IPs. So then if you have a DBA who takes care of your database and you have a Rails guy, who scales up the Rails server, you don't have to have a person who goes, oh, well, hang on a second, we add another server and this is the IP address. Can you go on up and up the IP address for this one? So that doesn't just happens automatically. Or when it comes to backups, instead of thinking of backing up database one, backing up database two, or backing up MySQL and Redis, we think of it as a date snapshot of your application. But let's say every 30 minutes, I want to take a backup. We take a backup, a snapshot of all your databases across the board. Redis, at the same time we do Postgres. And the idea is that you have, you know, if I want to restore, I want to restore my application functionality. I don't care about MySQL. I care about data. 
right? So when the restore happens, it happens across the board. So all everything we do on the growth stage, whereas the scaling, replication, traffic management, attack protection, DDoS, all the stuff that we do is with the developer's mindset to deliver the application service that you want. Now, going back to the feature that you highlighted, the failover groups, it came from a customer who were doing the coolest thing ever. So this is early days of Cloud 66, and we have this customer. And this is just after the, not just after, but like maybe a couple of years after the nuclear disaster in Japan. What they did, they would mount a Geiger counter, which can detect radioactivity on a mobile phone. So then you can send the data real time through a mobile phone network and mount it on a drone. So then they fly these essentially radioactive counters or detectors around the disaster area because sometimes a wind shift can bring all of a sudden. So you kind of tell, like you can tell who, wait, but rescue workers can go or what's happening, like where is the reading somewhere you cannot go. You've all seen that the pictures of that helicopter that just collapsed on top of Chernobyl, right? So you don't want that. You want like drones, probably cheaper and safer and less hazardous to human beings to fly over something like that. And they would send this onto this application that was hosted, I think, in Amazon Singapore, if I'm not mistaken, because it was closest to that, naturally. But when, you, when you're dealing with a natural disaster like this, no, no natural man-made in this case, but when you're dealing with a disaster, you probably want a failover group, like a failover pretty quick. So what they wanted was a different cloud provider, different region, different everything, so they can failover. And a lot of times having this disaster recovery plan is expensive because you need to kind of instantaneously switch and your plans don't work the worst moment. And you have all this plan. What is it that you know? You ha- everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face? It's kind of like you have this plan and you have the recipe of like building the entire stack from A to Z when you want it. And when you go do it, I don't know, GitHub's down, the app repository is moved on. And that's like the worst moment for this to happen. So what we do is that we create a skeleton of your application. We keep it warm. You can even have data replicated to it into a smaller server. And as soon as the disaster happens, we switch over to DNS. Might take about 20 minutes. It's kind of disaster recovery for the rest of us, right? We switch it over. And in their case, when you're dealing with a radioactive thing with a half-life of like 500 years, I think 20 minutes is something they can afford. So you can switch over to this new one. So I recently heard about a new feature from Cloud66 called auto-scaling. Can you tell us how that works? Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much the biggest feature release that we've done in many, many years. So we have the user voice, which collects and aggregates user requests and features they want. And auto-scaling has been there for 10 years, and it's always been the top request. And we are pretty responsive to customer requests. And so why did it take about 10 years for us to do something like this? Auto-scaling starts with good data. It's all about metrics. You scale based on your information, and auto-scaling just is no different. You need good data. And if you think about it, we have thousands and thousands of servers that we deploy for our customers, and each one of them want to send CPU, memory, disk metrics, and network metrics, as well as some custom ones. You know, how many items do you have back on the queue? Or you know, how fast can you go work your way through Sidekick? And then each one of them is 30 seconds apart. Just the amount of data that we have to collect and aggregate is at the level that for us as a small company is we need to think about it. So this is the fourth iteration of our metrics stack. We started with some custom homemade thing and it collapsed under the load. And then, and this is the whole 10 years worth of history collapsed into one minute. And then we went with Cassandra as a first columnar one. Then we went Gravit and Q combined with some Redis magic. You name it, we've done it. So this time our stack's based on the backbone of it is ClickHouse, which is an amazing piece of software. 
over time series. We've done InfluxDB. We've done, we've pretty much tried everything that we could. A lot of it probably we couldn't get to work because of our issues or our, I'm not saying that product X was not good enough, but the fact that our team could get ClickHouse to work is a testament to the quality of that piece of software. So its backbone is ClickHouse and we have our Rails stack on top of it and a bunch of other things to aggregate and, and go through it. So that's the kind of data part. And then on the other side, we wanted to, the other challenge of auto scaling is this. Again, it kind of goes back to looking at infrastructure from a developer's point of view. From a developer's point of view, CPU usage shouldn't really matter. You just want your software to be responsive, to respond to the user in a timely fashion. And what does that mean? Usually 100 milliseconds is the threshold. Get back to me within 100 milliseconds. So what is the CPU usage when you respond? If you ask, if you walk up to some developer in a conference and say, <laughs> I have a Rails app application and I want to have a less than 100 millisecond response time, what is my CPU utilization going to be? That doesn't make sense, yeah. right? Well, it depends. Like any good question, the answer is it depends, right? So when we wanted to do this, all the, the metrics come from these things, CPU, memory, and you have Rails or this point, you're gonna have, I'm going to have to say this, we have more than Rails. We started with Rails, but now we, you can host and deploy anything, including static, static sites like Jekyll and Gatsby and whatever, things that need building and then deploying just the static artifacts. So we do all of that, right? Now, within this kind of plethora of like all different wonderful permutations of everything, how can I keep my 100 millisecond promise? And the answer is two points. One is heuristics. If you've deployed enough times, you have an idea about your application. The second thing is, well, get the 100 millisecond metric from Nginx. You happen to have that. So this is kind of the two differences that we have with others. The first thing is we went with the kind of, I want to say like a Kubernetes philosophy of creating a desired world and then trying to turn, make the real world reflect that desire. When you, the, the difference between a prescriptive way of deploying infrastructure, and this is kind of a segue again, the, the difference between like the puppet and chef and I don't know, all these different ways of building an infrastructure is that are prescriptive. It's like a recipe, cake recipe. And you go through like this much flour, this much egg, that, 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 all that kind of go through this and put it in the oven and then out pops a sponge cake. Now, if I just, pick up a phone in the middle of my cooking and forget where which step I was in, all of a sudden it's like, oh shoot, now, okay, was it, did I add the vanilla or did I not? So it's a prescriptive way. That's a kind of a chef and puppet way. The Kubernetes way says like, I want a cake, here's the ingredient, make it so. And it tries and tries. And if it starts to deviate from the cake, it tries to get it, like it's the analogy breaks down here, but you know, you get the idea. So there are two ways to auto-scaling as well. The prescriptive way is like, which is like what you would get from Amazon, for example, is that, if my CPU is running more than 80% for more than five minutes, then scale up. Another way that is what the one we chose is, I want to keep my CPU at 40%, make it so. And we will go and make it so. Now, that could be reducing the number of processes. It might be actually creating another server and putting it behind a load balance. It could be getting a bigger load balance. So you, I don't know. We'll make, so it's heuristics around that, right? Okay. So you kind of say, what do you want? What's your desire? And we try to make the real world reflect that desire. And it's kind of a difference, it's a prescriptive way. So that's one difference. I think it makes it easier to have that. And you don't have these interfering requirements either. You're going to, my CPU needs to be this much. My memory needs to be that this much. And the roles might get into each other. So it flip-flops, but at some point it will stabilize or you kind of know that it's constantly flip-flopping. The other part is the advantage point that we have within the VM. So when you're dealing with a cloud provider's auto-scaling, and a lot of cloud providers, by the way, don't do auto-scaling. DigitalOcean, one of the biggest ones that they don't even have auto-scaling, is that your, their universe ends around the VM. 
they get metrics from within the VM. And a lot of them don't even get like things like disk, which is OS level, right? But even if they do disk, they don't get some like, what is the response time first byte back from Nginx? That's something that's like totally within the application. But we have that vantage point. We deploy Nginx. We can customize it to send that metric. So one of the things that you can do is you can say, Nginx is serving this endpoint, and I want this endpoint to have a response time of less than 100 milliseconds. And then what does that mean? More processes behind upstream servers for Nginx? Could be. A better data load balancer? Possibly. Distributing to different cloud providers? That's an option. More servers? Really good option. You know, those are kind of the, you know, the, the other ways of doing it. So that's also scaling. That's why it was a challenge. It kind of reminds me of your first startup when you're analyzing logs. Yes. You're looking at Nginx and <laughs> determining like, this is not fast enough. We need to do something. Exactly. And a lot of, and specifically, oddly, interestingly enough, it is actually a quite a throwback to that because Nginx, if you want to get stats, you need to pay for the enterprise version or the plus version, I think they call it. But not all of our customers have that. They don't have licenses for it. So we actually do analyze the logs. We force Nginx to generate a separate set of logs that are structured in JSON and they are very specific and high function into just giving us what we want. And we collect those. And how do you handle, if you need to scale up a server, does it go through the whole build process or is there some sort of... Shortcut. Shortcut, yeah. One of the things for us is to make sure that the infrastructure is immutable so you can build it from scratch, from zero to like happy all the time same thing. That means locking down the version dependencies and all of things and making sure that the build process is always identical. Because we do Rails and non-Rails, so our Rails stacks are deployed on VMs. There is no container, there is no Kubernetes, there's Docker, there's nothing inside like that. And it's just Rails as you know it. If you log in, it's essentially the service which you can. It looks and feels and smells exactly like as if you just did the work yourself. We don't, that's our philosophy. We don't want to do, like, feel that you're locked out of Classic Six magic here. We don't sprinkle magic anywhere. We don't like, I don't, I like magicians, but I don't like magic. (laughs) That's kind of my philosophy. Not in our, not in our software, at least. For non Rails, we do put into containers. So the build process is slightly different. Replicating it and kind of having those shortcuts is slightly different. If you have a built image, I mean, your life's much easier, right? But the other thing that we do, even for Rails stack, is that we have a functionality that you can enable, and that's taking a snapshot after each deployment. So once the deployments happen to your cloud provider, in the background, without disrupting your service, so your flow is going, your traffic's being served, your customers are happy, deployment took 105 minutes, we take a snapshot of the image, snapshot of the data image. And then for the next deployment, if you want to deploy exactly the same code, which in case of scaling is exactly the same Git ref, we use that. That makes it significantly faster, even for non-containerized workloads. So Cloud 66 is now 10 years old, 11 years old? That's right, yeah. What's the state of Cloud 66? How big of a company? Can you share any kind of numbers, like employees or revenue or any indication of size? We are a small size company, I can show you that. We are profitable. We turn a profit, which is, at least in our neighborhood, is an odd thing. It's like, what? You're not subsidizing a dollar bill? <laughs> like 90 cents on the coin? That's the kind of thing. But we believe in unit economy. I think. And kind of maybe it comes from, like, I don't know, the indie kind of background. Maybe it's the contract thing kind of thing. Maybe it's the European flavor. I don't know what. I've been told that it's a lot of different things. And I take whatever that's the most accurate. But Ultimately, it is about unit. We wanted to build a business that when we sell one unit, we turn a modest profit. It's not a social engine. It's not a social network that you need to have like this network effect. It's just a deployment. It's a tool and it needs to be out of your way. And for us, it needs to be always there. For, for you, it needs to be always there, 
when you need it, which means that we need to make some money to keep it alive. And that is where we are. We are turning a profit. We have raised VC money, which I'm happy to say after 10 years publicly that I regret. Not that because we took bad partners, our VC and angel investors are one of the few of the very, very best in the industry in terms of supportive nature and all the things that comes with it. And I'm very grateful to have them backing us. But from a business structure point of view, I wouldn't advise that. I would say this is useful for very specific businesses and specific outcomes. And we were naive and to a degree, I have to admit, desperate to have some capital because you have CapEx for things like this. But nevertheless, with a business that's unit economy sufficient, I think things start to work. And it's all about growing at a modest pace and making sure that your bucket's not leaking and you don't churn customers. So after that, then you have you put 10 years into it and you end up with a business that's it's a very good business. I know VCs would love to call that a lifestyle business, while most VCs have the most lifestyle businesses that only <laughs> five partners can take on 20 companies at the portfolio and they call themselves boutique. But I'm not here to fight over words. <laughs> <laughs> if you look back over this past 10 years, I could imagine that maybe you could break up that time into phases where you're maybe answering or stages of the company growth where you're answering different questions like, can we do this? Or how do we solve this? Do you have at a high level what those stages were in the past 10 years? Yes. I think there are those stages. Uh, so the first stage for us was exactly as it's commonly known as a product market fit. Like, what is it that we know that people like this? And there's a good thing and a bad thing about selling to developers. As I mentioned, your developers, as developers, we have the highest allergic level of allergic reaction to marketing and sales. And I think it's for the right reasons, because we are being told so much bullshit that we have a very sensitive radar. So if you even want to talk about some real thing, like it's actually good, it's really useful, you're going to have a hard, hard time. That's a kind of a bad side about that. But the good thing about it is like as a developer, when you build a tool for another developer, you're the first user. To a degree, you've satisfied the need. You kind of know that there is a need for it. It might be very niche and it might be just you and your you know, friends, but nonetheless, it's a still, it could be a very small business. So the first phase, is it useful? Do people want it? And then the second part is, how do you create this? For us, the second part was, what is the developer experience when it comes to something that's not entirely under our control? When you have Heroku, for example, when you build Heroku, you can deliver great developer experience because of great product people, but also because you control the entire stack. Because you're never going to say, sure, your application is down, but we're waiting as fast as possible for this solution to fix it, right? Because, I mean, DigitalOcean is having a pickup. We're going to have a heart stack, right? So that's kind of we having, right? And it is a very specific problem to the nature of what we do, but it's difficult to, and it's difficult to fix because you have to deliver a service that's many parts of it out of your control. A big chunk of it is customer application, which you don't know what it is. The other parts are about app dependencies and Git repos and cloud availabilities and GitHub being up or down, all sorts of things around that. Okay, so then the developer experience becomes, so you have to pad it and you have to cover it and you have to have a lot of fallbacks and a lot of different things. And that kind of comes back to the fact that we can deliver, if we do that right, we can deliver something like failover groups. Because the second time the disaster recovery, we know that it's going to work because we've dealt with something that can be broken in many different places. So that's the kind of second part. And the third phase that I would say for us was breaking out rails, allowing support in two different cases. 
one, non-Rails dynamic applications or server-side applications that are known. And the second part was static applications or Jamstack, where you have a build phase where it turns some dynamic code into static assets, and then you upload that asset to S3. So for us, the take for the dynamic is bring your code, bring your cloud, Heroku on your own servers. For static servers, like you bring your code for, say, Next.js, and bring your cloud, which do support say, S3-compatible storage, and then we'll make that work. So that's the kind of the build phase, deployment phase, traffic, all that sort of stuff. So those are kind of, the kind of breakout of Rails was the, was the next one. And then the fourth one becomes as you grow, as you scale. When you have so many different customers running so many wonderful applications in so many amazing ways, then you cannot just go and say, you know what, from tomorrow, we're going to remove this environment variable. 10% of your customers are going to be like, you know, at the door with pitchforks. That's just, not going to work. So change management becomes a thing. You really need to think about what the implication of this is. And we get that a lot of times, right? A lot of our customers come and say, why do you do it this way? That's just stupid. And we actually go out of our way to explain exactly we've done this this way. And this is like, and a lot of times it's actually good suggestions and we didn't see it and we will follow their advice. But sometimes we have to explain like, you know what, if we did it this way, a lot of customers do it the other way. But Ultimately, it's all about how can we deliver a service that you can use and benefit and enjoy and it will be useful to you. So let's just look at the outcome as opposed to the way we do it. You talk about these sort of this, these phases that you've come to. Can you guess what the next one is, do you think? Or is it like it's going to come okay, when it comes? Yeah. I mean, it's part of it is that. Okay, chat GPT. Now every journalist thinks that they kind of know everything about chat GPT. But two years ago, they were clueless thinking that machine learning is about like x whatever. There's a lot of ignorance there, and I'm very much part participant in that ignorance. But there are parts that come out of experience that you see users have. Okay, so what do I, what do I mean by that? Cloud business is a very commoditized business. Amazon made sure of that, and everybody else is following suit. When you sell the basic building blocks of computing in a computer storage and network, it's all commoditized. There's nothing proprietary there. There's like, there's no difference between a CPU cycle and Amazon and, and Google. So there is a very strong drive from those cloud providers to go up the stack. And that's why you have 500 and so Amazon web services. It's just amazing how many, like you can send emails, you can send push notifications to mobile. And what's that got to do with cloud, right? It's just a hosted service. It's basically cloud blocks that we wanted to build, right? But here's the thing. They are coming up the stack and we're sitting at the top of that and we see the pressure from the bottom which means the first next phase for us is going to be how can we make that work with Cloud 66? A lot of our customers, especially if this happens to us, and this is no secret that I'm revealing here, there's a, it's not a majority of our customers, but very few get acquired by a bigger company. And when they go to a public company, the public company comes with its own agenda. We want to go serverless or we want to whatever. And they have their own thing that they need to run. So they force this small startup to do that thing. Now, that small startup used to run on Cloud 66. Happily, everything's fine. And then their CTO, which is now on a VP of product at a big public company, calls me and says, they are pushing for serverless, or they're pushing for this centralized, self-hosted Kubernetes, yada, 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 with like 50 people are just maintaining it. And how can I use Cloud 66 for that? Because I really love it. And our team really love it. And we don't have an answer for that. If you are one of the few lucky ones who get picked up by someone and can publish an amazing journey blog post and ride into the sunset and all customers high and dry, good for you. 
We don't have an answer for that. So if you come from a public company that have 50-man DevOps team that maintain a beast of a cluster that hosts everything, say Costco, one of the things that we are exploring right now is how can we play nice with those and how can we extend the life of Cloud 66 in a customer's journey where they get to be part of a huge company. Because for us, our customer base is small, medium sizes. We don't do very well with a public company, but we want to be able to do that. You may not have a good answer to this, but I think you might be in a position to answer this for me. I've been thinking a lot about when you're working on SaaS applications, a lot of times you think there's like a certain new thing that will unlock a new market. For example, going multilingual. Ah, you know, we're in English only right now, but if we get Spanish, the new Spanish market will open up in this big way and we'll be able to really increase customer growth from that. And I'm wondering if you might have a unique perspective on this, thinking about either opening up new stacks with Cloud66 or even opening up new cloud providers or opening up in new countries and that sort of thing. Do you see that as being a harder thing technically to do or from a marketing perspective? Is it harder to accomplish the technical side of opening up a new stack or a new cloud provider or handling the marketing to say, hey, now we support Next.js. Hey, Next.js users who are not connected to Rails users, you can now use us. We get requests. We used to get a lot more, but now we know how to handle it. So I guess I, I don't see it much, but we get requests from cloud providers, small cl- cloud providers to integrate with Cloud66. I want to say like once or twice a month. And there's a hell of a lot of cloud providers, more than what we know, right? Some of them are specialized in GPUs, AI, or gaming, Mac, or OS X kind of hosting. Some of them just standard ones, regional in Switzerland because of data privacy, or just general, and they want to compete with Amazon. So that's the luck. But that's the nature of the thing. And we get requests from those to integrate. We used to say yes to everyone, because it's just, what is it? Like yet another cloud call, or API call? It's fine, that's easy. Then we realized that the ultimate, because of that thing that I said, control of the entire stack, we realized that the ultimate experience of a customer is very much dependent on the whole thing. So if I partner up with a cloud provider that doesn't have a good uptime reputation, ultimately my customers are going to suffer. And I'm going to be the first one picking up the support tab when they come back yelling, rightly so. So we want to limit that to a quality. So we either limit it to a you know, limited set. We have now nine or 10 cloud providers, plus you can bring your own servers if you want. But you can also get to demand some SLA. We demand some inside access to the stack if we were to support those cloud providers. And like one example is OVH. OVH is a French cloud provider. It's pretty big in France and a lot of government French things run on that. And they also are big in obviously Canada, Quebec, where there's a lot of the internationalization of the French user interface probably helps. And very big there. We probably don't use them as much as we could anywhere else. But that's kind of one of the few cloud providers that we support because of a specific requirement from some of our customers in France and Quebec. But other than that, we don't really do that for any other cloud provider. So then the question becomes, let's say another framework or another open source tool or another database. Like, would you support this Tiger something DB? Or there's so many of them now. It becomes a question of exactly what you say, market positioning. Like, what are you? Who are you? What do you do? And that is a story that you should always, in my opinion, should always be able to tell in a short way. Like, what do, we, what do I do? I know I'm Roku on any cloud. Okay, so then what about Jamstack? Oh, okay, so now I have to uh, modify my story. Bring your code, bring your cloud. Build, deploy, grow. Like, whatever that is. Now, if we were to say, 
you know, that, and then you can connect your own Kubernetes and you can deploy to your own. Okay. Then I have to, so the market positioning is different. Go to market is also different because you already have, we have, I don't know, like 200,000 developers that use Cloud 66 and we have their email address. We have a relationship with them. We talk to them. We hear back from them sometimes. And now all of a sudden I'm going to go and like build another community of people who do WordPress. That's not, WordPress community is amazing, but it's not my community. I'm in Rails community. So the whole go-to-market is different for that. I don't speak WordPress. I don't know how to talk to a WordPress person. So that's kind of part. But if I wanted to say, what are these those things, the generic things in a SaaS business, which I think it was the core of your question, probably. If I didn't know what the SaaS business is, and I just wanted to give like a granddad advice as to like you know, that kind of stuff, as to what that is for Inflection points, creating these inflection points in the business, I would say there are two things that apply pretty much to every business that is going to have an impact, fully positive. One is pricing, the second is support. So even if you want to add another language, I don't know what the impact of that's going to be on your business. But I do know if you change your pricing, it is going to have an impact, hopefully in a positive way. And then the second one is support. We are accustomed as developers, we are accustomed to, or SaaS customers, I should say, free support. Essentially for anything, you just send an email and you're expecting an answer. Now try doing that with your airline. I want to change my flights. Oof. Okay. That's great. But it's kind of somewhat as the same person, I expect GitHub to answer my support ticket for free and within like two hours. But I prepare myself, wear my battle shoes because I want to call United to get, you know, this is kind of, I'm the same person. Why is my expectations different? So... Support is another thing that you can really play with. You can really either delight your customers or piss them off or set expectations as to what to expect. And I think those are the kind of two generic pieces of information that I can get. And those things will create inflection points in your business. All right, Cash, we've really enjoyed hearing about your story. Thank you for walking us along from the, the very beginning all the way to where you are now. I really enjoy hearing about companies like Cloud66 and congratulations on 10 plus years of running a successful, profitable company. Is there anything else you want to leave with us? Anything that we, our audience or we can do for you? No, I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the story. And I hope this was an inspiration or at least some sort of yet another story for a lot of indie developers who want to build a business, who are in loves rails and who love building a SaaS business and want to build something. And that's yet another data point that hopefully is useful to them. And thank you for the opportunity. So, so I could share this with you and with your listeners. Cloud66 is an independent and in many ways business. And hopefully we can help well, your listeners with, with their hosting and deployment of Rails stacks. We will follow up with a discount code that you can share with the listeners. And that will hopefully be a yet another thing that will kickstart a lot of good Rails-based businesses. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Cash. <laughs>